Genesis 19, 1 to 14, and then 24 to 36. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, while Lot was sitting by the city gate. When he saw them, he rose to meet them, and bowing low, he said, I pray you, sirs, turn aside to your servant's house to spend the night there and bathe your feet. You can continue your journey in the morning. No, they answered. We shall spend the night in the street. But Lot was so insistent that they accompanied him into his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking unleavened bread for them to eat. Before they had laid down to sleep, the men of Sodom, both young and old, everyone without exception, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may have intercourse with them. Lot went out into the doorway to them and closing the door behind him, he said, no, my friends, do not do anything so wicked. Look, I have two daughters, virgins, both of them. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But do nothing to these men because they have come under the shelter of my roof. They said, out of our way, this fellow has come and settled here as an alien. And does he now take it upon himself to judge us? We will treat you worse than them. They crowded in on Lot and pressed close to break down the door. But the two men inside reached out, pulled Lot into the house and shut the door. Then they struck those in the doorway, both young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the entrance. The two men said to Lot, have, have you anyone here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters or anyone else belonging to you in the city? Get them out of this place because we are going to destroy it. The Lord is aware of the great outcry against its citizens and has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and urged his sons-in-law to get out of the place at once. The Lord is about to destroy the city, he said, but they did not take him seriously. Um, on to 24, uh, verse 24, sorry. And the Lord rained down fire and brimstone from the skies on Sodom and Gomorrah. He overthrew those cities and destroyed all the plain with everyone living there and everything growing in the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and she turned into a pillar of salt. Early next morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood in the presence of the Lord. As he looked over Sodom and Gomorrah and all the, whole, the wide extent of the plain, he saw thick smoke rising from the earth like smoke from a kiln. Thus it was. When God destroyed the cities of the plain, he took thought for Abraham by rescuing Lot from the total destruction of the cities where he had been living. Because Lot was afraid to stay in Zohar, he went up from there and settled with his two daughters in the hill country, where he lived with them in a cave. The elder daughter said to the younger, our father is old and there's not a man in the country to come to us in the usual way. Come." Now, let us pass wine and then lie with him, and in this way, preserve the family through our father. That night, they gave him wine to drink, and the elder daughter came and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down and when she got up. Next day, the elder said to the younger, Last night I lay with my father. Let us ply, with him. ply, let us ply him with wine again tonight. Then you can go and lie with him. So we shall preserve the family through our father. They gave their father wine to drink that night also, and the younger daughter went and lay with him. 
and he did not know when she lay down and when she got up. In this way, both of Lot's daughters came to be pregnant by their father. Thank you so much for reading, Margaret, and um, it would be wonderful if you kept that passage open in front of you. It's a harrowing passage, isn't it? Um, and we'll have to take it really seriously and understand what the author is saying. Why don't I just lead us in prayer as we look at it again? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bit of scripture, and we pray that we would understand it faithfully. We pray they would heed the warning and the bits that are disturbing, Father. We pray we'd, be, we'd have a sober mind about what you have to say now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you managed to get any um, sleep over the last week because we left last chapter on a cliffhanger, didn't we? Uh, the angel of God had, uh, they just departed from their sunny feast with Abraham and they're now en route to Sodom with their fingers on the red button of destruction. Abraham, that newly dubbed father of nations, he's just petitioned the Lord asking that the city be spared. There are just 10 righteous citizens in Sodom. And so today's passage is our first glimpse um, into what it means for Abraham to act in his role. And we wonder whether he's actually able to save the nations from the brink of death, which makes this a really crucial chapter for us today. Because if, if Abraham's intervention means safety for those in the crosshairs of divine judgment, then what we're reading today holds the key to life in the face of death. Uh, but we'll also see that this passage has a crucial warning for us. Um, for us who, like Abraham's nephew Lot, are sojourners, uh, we're citizens of heaven, living in the midst of unbelievers in this world. You'll see a summary of where we're headed on the handout if you're following along. Uh, the father of nations is able to save us from ruin but our love for the world can still leave us ruined. And hopefully you'll see this in the passage as we look through it. So firstly, the father of nations is able to save us from ruin. Uh, there's danger around every corner in this narrative. You might've noticed that as Margaret was reading for us, and you can almost hear Lot's heart pounding from the Bible's pages. But the narrative begins in a, in a fairly innocuous way, doesn't it? In fact, it reminds us quite a bit of last week's passage. If you look with me in 19 verse one, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. It's interesting to chart uh, Lot's progression in the story so far. Back in chapter 13, you know, Lot saw the land of Sodom from afar. And by chapter 14, he'd settled in as an inhabitant of the land. And here in chapter 19, well, Lot's made a life in Sodom. Uh, the fact that he's sitting at the city gate means that he's become a man of prominence in Sodom, something of an elder. So while Abraham's become a, gr a great man as a nomad in covenant with God, living in a tent, well, Lot has become great as a citizen of the city of man. And there's a direct comparison between Abraham and his nephew in this chapter. So just like Abraham in chapter 18, uh, Lot is met with angelic visitors and offers him hospitality. But curiously, he's turned down. You'll notice they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But in verse three, he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast with and baked unleavened bread 
and they ate. And so while it's superficially similar to the events of last week, uh, there are some big differences we can notice already, aren't there? So here it's no longer day, but the cover of night. I'm um, here, the guests, they're, they're no longer willing, but reluctant. And here there's, there's no uh, lavish feast with three seers of flour to make bread, but a hastily prepared unleavened bread. And I think the subtext is clear here. Abraham's meal celebrated the expectation of life, the promise of Isaac. But Lot's meal is marred by the expectation of death in Sodom. We entered the story hoping that Sodom isn't as bad as we'd feared. But as we read from verse 4, this hope quickly evaporates. And I'm not sure there are words to describe just how stomach-churning this sequence is. Let's read from verse 4. Before they lay down, uh, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot's home is mobbed by these men of Sodom and they demand that Lot Lot gives his guests up so that they may know them, which is a Hebrew euphemism for sexual relations. The men of Sodom have come to rape Lot's visitors. And if we were holding our breath for at least 10 righteous in Sodom, well, this is all the people to the last man surrounding the house. This isn't just one deranged individual or a couple. No, this is the culture of this godless community. And Lot's attempt to avert the men, well, it does nothing to avert the bitter tastes in our mouths at this point in the narrative. In verse six, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. And they do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. So Lot instead offers up his two young daughters to satisfy this mob frenzied with lust. And it's just this abject failure as a father, isn't it, for Lot? This is terribly uh, compromising situation for him, and it leaves him making terribly compromised decisions. And so as the mob draws near to break the door down, Lot's angelic guests finally take control of the situation. In verse 11, they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. I mean, even the judgment of God is not enough to dissuade these men. Sodom's like a, a scene from a horror film, isn't it? And at this point, I think it's worth tracking why Lot chose to live in Sodom in the first place. So back in chapter 13, when Lot surveyed Sodom from afar, it seemed to offer the prosperous life. It even looked like the Garden of Eden, the author tells us. And yet the author also told us that the city was filled with wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Uh, Lot chose this life in the midst of the wicked for the prosperity it promised. And this type of city, you know, what we might call the worldly city as opposed to the heavenly city, I mean, this has been a big theme in Genesis so far. You might recall Lamech City back in Genesis 4, a city of sexual license, 
and a man-made system of right and wrong. You might also recall Babel, Genesis 11, this monumental society built by humans to replace God. And these worldly cities, they seem to promise all the benefits of the heavenly city, but without reference to a creator. You might say they offer the kingdom benefits without the king to rule it. And this might sound like an obvious link to make, but doesn't that sound a lot like our city? You know, a city with the promise of prosperity, but a city of scarce regard for the God who made it. And not just London, but, but every city short of the heavenly city sets itself up as a counterfeit Eden. It offers security and happiness and fulfillment and nothing to do with God. And that's why the author of Genesis wants us to hear this. I mean, this is life outside the garden. Sodom might strike us as a unique abomination of a city, but every worldly city shares its genetic makeup. And so we can relate to the tensions of Lot's existence, this man who's caught between the values of the city of heaven and the values of the city of man, tempted to become conformed to uh, our godless surroundings and at risk of losing what makes us distinctive as God's people. So if we're really sojourners like Lot, then we need to pay close attention to what makes Lot's story a cautionary tale. Returning to the narrative, um, in verse 12, the angels revealed their agenda. If you read with me in, in verse 12, the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, uh, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place. And here, uh, Lot responds in faith, that first warning his sons-in-law. And in verse 14, Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, uh, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. We can imagine Lot waving his arms frantically, maybe even with tears, as his sons-in-law mock and snigger, even with some of their very last breaths. And isn't that such a picture of the city today? You know, a world that has lost the ability to take God's wrath seriously. The day of judgment is just a big joke. And we wonder whether Lot has become such a product of Sodomite culture that he's lost his credibility. It's possible to become so indistinguishable from the world around us uh, that we lose the ability to preach God's word credibly. And here, I mean, it's the people around us who pay the price. Lot's allegiance is torn between God and Sodom. And the frayed edges of the tear become more and more apparent as the story progresses. Read with me in verse 15. As morning dawned, uh, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So even as Sodom is on the brink of annihilation, I mean, Lot can't bear to leave. His heart is in Sodom. He's made a name there. You know, he's made a life there. And so he lingers. And I'm sure we'd all like to think that we'd do much better than Lot if we were in his position. But I think we'd all linger. You know, think about the magnetism of our big city freedoms, the allure of our big city job titles, the security of our big city assets. 
you know, how can you so quickly abandon what you've poured your hopes and ambitions into? For some of us over decades, you know, it's so tempting to go down with the ship that we've spent our life building. But the Lord is merciful to a lingering lot. In verse 16, the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And the angels yank Lot and his wife and his two daughters out of the city by force. And even as they escape, the temptation is to feel remorse for leaving the perishing city. And so in verse 18, one of the angels says, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Such is the pull of the city. And in the morning, uh, God's justice is poured out on wicked Sodom. In verse 24, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. The men who wore themselves out groping at Lot's door are now indistinguishable from the smoldering ruins around them. And we can only wonder what Lot's son-in-law thought as the fire rained down and they realized that the joke was on them. Uh, I was cycling in the city the other day and I passed the monument just before London Bridge, you know, this towering reminder of the great fire that ravaged the city. And it just made me think, you know, that great fire was a bonfire compared to the judgment that is to come. But there will be no opportunity to build a monument after the day of judgment, no memorial for the dead. And do we, do we really believe that our world will be destroyed? And those who don't have Jesus with it? There's one more death in this story, and it takes place outside Sodom. In verse 26, Lot's wife behind him looked back. She became a pillar of salt. Now, Lot's wife was warned not to look back in verse 17, uh, but her attachment to the world got the better of her. She belonged in Sodom, and so she shares their fate. Salt here is a picture of uh, judgment, of infertility, of death. And Lot's wife is the picture of wanting to preserve your life in the worldly city and losing it for eternity. In fact, this is Jesus's reflection on this narrative in Luke 17. Jesus's warning simply, remember Lot's wife. You know, it's possible to have every opportunity for safety on the day of judgment, but for your preference for the world to win out. I mean, do we heed the warning? We, we might think that a little double-mindedness is harmless. I'm sure Lot's wife would have said so too. And we began by asking ourselves, can the father of nations really save the city? And the answer's there in the author's summary in verse 29. If you look with me in verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and set Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. 
So why was Lot's life preserved? Well, God remembered not Lot, but Abraham. Of course, that word remembered doesn't imply that God forgot. This is God making good on his promise from earlier in the narrative. And if Lot walks out of Sodom unscathed, it is because Abraham stepped in as the father of nations for his sake. And this is a clear signal to God's people that if if they're to be saved at the judgment, well, it won't be due to their own merit. And I hope Lot's example teaches us that much. No, it'll be because of the Saviour's intervention on our behalf. This narrative is a pivotal validation of the role of the Father of Nations. It it really nuances our understanding of salvation, doesn't it? Salvation will be on this individual basis and brought about by our association with the Saviour. So the city of London wholesale will not be saved. But anyone who follows the Lord Jesus will. God will mercifully pluck them from danger on the final day for their association with the Saviour. This text is giving us a picture of salvation, isn't it? But it's much, much messier than we might have expected. And the mess uh, comes as a warning to us in point two, more briefly. If you've tuned out, this is a good time to tune back in for point two. Uh, The father of nations is able to save us from ruin, but our love for the world can still leave us ruined. In verse 30, if you'll read with me. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Back when Lot rolled with Abraham, he had a superabundance, you know, so many possessions that herdsmen couldn't even stop their livestock getting mixed up. And now he's living in a cave. He's like a dead man in a tomb, cowering with his daughters in fear. You know, his life is in tatters. And in fact, his daughters take advantage of his decrepit state. Verse 31 The firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And the next night, his younger daughter does the same. Lot's just in a terrible place right now, isn't he? I'm not sure how drunk you need to be that you're oblivious to when your daughter lays down or arises, and twice, no less. And I think what we're seeing here is that Lot's daughters are sodomites to the heart. You know, they've been immersed in the influence of the city of man, including its sexual ethics. And they think about sex in the manner of all the earth, not in the manner of God. Who made them. Lot hasn't raised his children in the instruction of the Lord. He's allowed Sodomite culture to set his family's agenda and his family's boundaries so that drunkenness and incest remain a real possibility. And I'm not sure what you expect after you escape your town being engulfed in flames, but there's no clear repentance for Lot or his daughters. They don't seem at all transformed by what took place in Sodom. You know, they're saved, but they don't live like it. Both daughters bear sons to their own father in that cave. And as one writer puts it so poignantly, in that cave, 
Sodom was reborn. And this is the last that we hear of Lot's life. You know, a man saved, but a man ruined by his double-mindedness. He's unable to choose between a life in the city that's as good as ashes and life with God in safety. Lot thought that he could take hold in the wicked city without it taking a hold of him. And I wonder, do we think the same way? You know, it always seems like the wise option to have a foot in both camps, to hedge our bets. You know, we get the worldly security of unbelievers now and the heavenly security of believers later. But if we take any warning from this account, it's that a double-mindedness can be fatal. You might even say it's playing with fire. I think um, there's a good diagnostic question that Lot's story leads us asking. I mean, do you really believe that you're a sojourner in a perishing world, that your true citizenship is, is the heavenly city in Christ and that you're a temporary resident on earth until that time? And do you really believe that this world is on its last legs, that anything that we build here is on a foundation with a burning fuse and it's just a matter of time before it all goes up in flames. You know, how would life look different if we, if we really grasped that? Would we be people who are saved and who really live like it? You know, perhaps you know Christians who give the impression that you can have it both ways, that you can save life now and save it later. You know, living in the world, they, they seem to have bought the claims of all the, the fake security and the fleeting happiness and the false fulfillment that the city has to offer. Oh, and they're, and they're also uh, banking on the cross to deliver them on the final day too. And I hope we see how profoundly foolish this is. It's, it's making a mockery of Jesus when he warns us that whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. This dual citizenship kind of living is dangerously presumptuous. It's playing with fire. But it also harms those around us. You know, when we take our cues from the world and not from Jesus, can we really expect people to take us seriously as Christians? And it's tragic to see Lot's inability to bless those around him. You know, think about his, his sneering sons-in-law, his faltering wife, his unchastened daughters. The battle to live blamelessly for God began long ago when Lot moved into Sodom. But it's a battle that he didn't fight. And just look at the spiritual havoc around him. The author of Genesis wants us to be wise to the silent, uh, creeping dangers of attempting dual citizenship, making a worldly life and a heavenly life at the same time. You know, it's a striking a privilege and joy that we can call ourselves members of the heavenly city in the Lord Jesus and only by his intervention for us. You know, we are saved as God remembers Jesus, the father of nations can truly save God's people. But do we really think that we can still take root in the worldly city without it taking root in us? This will be a temptation for us as long as we live short of our heavenly home. And so we must remember Lot's wife who even with the stench of sulfur still fresh in her nostrils, turned back to mourn the perishing world that she loved. And even on the day of her salvation, 
managed to lose everything. So let me lead us in prayer and then there'll be a chance to discuss. Uh, dear God, we thank you that there is uh, salvation in Jesus' name, even for the far-flung nations, even for us. And we pray that we would uh, come to Jesus with humility and thankfulness that we are saved on his behalf. Uh, but we also heed this warning that, God, please keep us from double-mindedness. Please help us to see the folly of trying to hedge our bets and have a foot in both camps. Please help us to live as holy sojourners, as true citizens of heaven in the midst of an unbelieving world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.